Our guest speaker this morning is a friend from many years ago when we were in the same church in Southern California, Joe and Renee Dallas. Uh, Renee, will you stand, please? We welcome you. Renee is a great speaker, uh, leads uh, ministries nationally as well, and uh, they're a great team. But Joe Dallas, uh, Joe and Renee were with us June of last year. Uh, Joe comes out of a homosexual lifestyle and out of being on staff on a, at a gay church, being very immersed in gay theology. Um, he, he experienced something that's very controversial, even in the Christian world now, let alone the secular culture, and that's experienced transformation by the power of Jesus. And um, it was a few years after he came out of that lifestyle that we met. And uh, Joe has become a, a, a leading voice in our country uh, in terms of a Christian response to LGBTQ issues. Also the founding executive director of Restory Ministry, who hold a great conference here yesterday. We had an amazing day here. And uh, the new, yeah, give it up for him. And the new executive director for, uh, for Restory Ministries is Dr. Linda Seiler, who's right here on the front. We're so honored to have you. Linda, stand please. Love and appreciate you. Uh, she comes from being a Chi Alpha pastor, speaking of Chi Alpha, at Purdue University, an amazing lady and a brilliant world-class communicator, and uh, we had an amazing day yesterday. But Joe and Renee, we love and appreciate you and so grateful for what you're doing and uh, the clarity with which you're helping all of us see these issues. So let's welcome Joe Dallas as he comes to preach. Hey, thank you. Good morning. This is like homecoming for us, being again with Pastor Bradford, who is still uh, to us a shepherd and, and a treasured friend. And I especially appreciate the chance to be with you again to talk about an issue that I think is of concern to all of us, how we as the body of Christ can respond most effectively to the LGBTQ movement, to the people who are a part of that movement and to those who are supportive of the movement. Now, you know, when you are passionate about something, you got to be careful because it's so easy to figure if I am passionate about this, you've got to be equally passionate about it and drop everything else you're doing and get on my bad wagon. Oh, for heaven's sake, there are thousands of issues that the body of Christ needs to respond to. There are many dynamic, critical issues vying for the church's attention. That is true, and this is one of them. But I do think we can at least agree that this is an issue which is pressing itself more upon the body of Christ and is demanding a response from us as ambassadors who have the challenge to both serve the people we are sent to and please the one who has sent us and never to get the two of those confused. So to that end, I'd like to talk about how we can improve our response, both to those who are caught up in these different sins and to those who are indirectly impacted by them. And boy, that is a lot of people, isn't it? There are people like me 
who reached in 1984 a critical point, a crisis of truth, when I realized this is not what God created me for. I came to the church and I was a lot like Solitarsus saying, okay, now Lord, what would you have me to do? I'm at ground zero. They need the church. There are a lot of young people amazingly confused by the multitude of messages they are getting, virtually all of them false, about truth, about sexuality, and about gender identity. They need the church. There are many older people who are impacted by this. We often think of this issue in terms of, well, we need to reach the young people, which we absolutely do. But for heaven's sake, we're losing a lot of people of all ages. We truly are, because there are many women and men within the church who have silently wrestled with homosexual temptations. And over the years, they have been told relentlessly by the culture, give into it, give into it, give into it. And they're getting tired. And oftentimes they too are leaving and they need us. And there are certainly plenty of parents, family members who've had a loved one come out to them and say, I'm transitioning or I'm lesbian or I'm gay and they are in grief and, and they need us. We're definitely approaching high noon on this. We, we truly are. Uh, we've got pressure from the culture. There is a degree of confusion within some parts of the church. Uh, we're feeling the heat, we're feeling the heat. So how we respond now in 2022 is going to have a good deal to do with our effectiveness over the next coming years. So we, we have options, don't we? Um, we can make mistakes that some of the church has made in the past. We can continue making mistakes that some in the church are making in the present, or we can go for a better way. That is what I would like to talk about, the challenge to respond the better way the better way. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer's last book was titled The Great Evangelical Disaster. I read it shortly after I repented in 1984. Good night. That was one prophetic book. Dr. Schaeffer said then, well over 30 years ago, that one of the greatest dangers the modern church faces is the danger of compromising either conviction or compassion. And he said the church is always at her weakest when she compromises either of these. She compromises compassion, well then she holds the right position but in the wrong way, she's a Pharisee. She compromises conviction, she's fuzzy. And she's not able to give clear direction because she's afraid of clarity. And so he exhorted the church to pay attention to the balance between compassion and conviction and not to yield to either extreme or either compromise. I'd like to talk about those two extremes. One of them, I believe, has been more traditional. One is one that we are currently in danger of falling into, and then I would like to talk about a better way. Let's start with the first extreme. I would call it the harsher way. This has to do with our response to people who are same-sex attracted, to people who are transgender, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's how we respond to anyone suffering from the human condition manifest in whatever particular sin there is in their life. On this particular sin, I do believe, and I say it carefully and respectfully, much of the church has over the decades been infected with worldliness. And when I say worldliness, I mean whatever the attitude of the world is at that time. I am 67 years old. When I was growing up in the late 50s and early 60s, the world held an open, vehement contempt for all homosexual people. It was acceptable 
to beat them up. It was acceptable to call them names. They were seen in many ways as the lowest of the low of the modern lepers. And unfortunately, I believe much of the church was infected with that worldly attitude in that when the issue was discussed within the walls of the church, which was rare, but when it was, it tended to be discussed with a contempt that was not expressed for other sexual sins. Now, God forbid we ever be guilty of calling light darkness or darkness light. There is no ambiguity in scripture about the sinfulness of homosexuality, but we do notice that in Leviticus and Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, homosexuality is named alongside a number of sins, sexual and non-sexual, all of which are equally condemned, and yet this one seemed to be singled out for special treatment. And because of that, many people within the church, I believe, who were personally affected with this were getting what I call prohibition without purpose. That's bad, don't do it, because I said so. Now, I'm a parent, so I have a certain respect for because I said so. Because sometimes that's all you got. I mean, the little darlings will argue you right into the ground. So there is a point for saying, I'm dad, good night. I get that. I know. But in church ministry, too often, I believe, many churches have basically preached a prohibition against homosexuality without ever talking about the broader issue. And that has, to many homosexuals, reinforced the idea of well, I'm very different, I'm very weird, and I better shut up about it. Now, I think when we speak more broadly about the larger issue, we recognize four points that I think are worth repeating whenever we're dialoguing with lesbian or gay or transgender people. One is that the male-female union was not an accident. It was created, and it was created in response to the deepest of human needs. We remember the first critical thing God ever said about humanity. It is not good for man to be alone. Which surely he didn't mean as an oops, like, oh, I made Adam, oh, darn it, there's a defect. Gee, now what'll I do? Mm, Gabe, got any ideas? No. No, was, he knew exactly what he was doing when he created Adam with a need for union and said, in response to that need, I will create the contrast, Eve, and I will look on that and I will call it good, not only because it will be to the satisfaction in the truest sense of their deepest emotional and sexual and spiritual needs, it will also bear my image. Male and female created he them. It's created in response to need, not just as something arbitrary that was laid on people, and it was a created need. The need itself was created, the response was created, and of course that is in contrast to much of what we feel because of that sucker, the fall, the fall. That is to say we frequently crave what is not in our best interest. This I believe we need to emphasize when we're talking about any kind of sexual standard because if we're honest we have to admit that much of what is in our best interest is not what we crave. And anybody who's tried to diet can testify to that. If you wake up hungry, let me make an educated guess. You are not saying, oh, it's 2 a.m., what I wouldn't give right now for some steamed broccoli. <laughs> With lemon, ooh, yeah, no. What, what do you want in the middle of the night? I don't want the starch and the grease and the sugar and the carbs and, oh, you know. 
The appetite craves what is not in the body's best interest. Well, we sang about that this morning, didn't we? We groan. Why? Well, that is part of fallen nature. E even the environment knows something's not right. So frequently what we crave via appetite is not what the body really needs. Now that translates into all parts of life, does it not? Including, unfortunately, even our sexual and emotional responses. Sexually and emotionally, we also frequently crave what is not in our own best interest. If we can admit that to ourselves, we can also educate those who come into the church saying, why did God make me this way if he forbids me to give in to it? Because God did not make you that way. You, like all of us, have cravings that are not in your best interest, and we invite you to join all of us as we all say a godly no to what we know is not in our own best interest and a yes to the will of God applied to our all lives. All of us are having to do the same. And that way we do not normalize sexual sin, we normalize the experience of resisting sexual sin. Believe me, that alone could revolutionize the lives of people who are same-sex attracted who come into our churches. So that is the better way, prohibition with purpose. Then there is prohibition without partnering, which I believe has been a historical error many have committed. I know, again, you've got to be careful anytime you say the church this or the church that. Oh, which church, which people? I mean, you can't say anything uniform about the entire body of Christ other than it is the body of Christ. But yes, I think many in the body of Christ fell into the error of prohibition without partnering, which means basically don't do that we rejoice in the fact that you're not going to do that, but we just assume you do that over there. Repent quietly, get healed quietly, but don't make a mess where we have to see it. And that has left a lot of people struggling, feeling like lepers, even within the church. I remember just for example, some, I think about 25 years ago, I was asked to be a guest on what was at the time one of the most popular Christian TV shows in the country, and it was an honor, my goodness. They said, we'd like you to come on, give your testimony, and talk about your work, and it sounded great to me, and I showed up, and the producer met me at the studio and said, Mr. Dallas, hi, we're nervous. Because we've never had anyone like you. I said, okay, well, thank you for having me anyway. And he said, well, the regular host won't come on tonight because we've never had anyone like you. I said, okay, well, we'll make the best of it. And, said, and a lot of our partners are nervous because did I mention we've never had anybody like you? Well, by now I'm feeling like the elephant man, the exhibit that's being carted around. And it wasn't that bad. The interview was good, but here's the catch. I knew for a fact that this same show years earlier had gone into California prisons and had interviewed the testimonials of some of the former members of the Charles Manson family who were serving life sentences for some of the most notorious crimes in American history, mass murders that were really unspeakable. And they had come to Christ in prison. That was awesome, that was beautiful. But I thought, for heaven's sake, you're honestly telling me that you were comfortable interviewing former mass murderers and you're scared to interview a former homosexual. Now you imagine the messaging that would send to anyone who would privately deal with that as something in their lives they wanted to deal with but were scared to death they admitted they had. And I believe this is one of the reasons, tragically, 
We have lost so many people to this. So many ministers, evangelists, worship leaders, husbands, wives, kids, lost to this sin. Not because the struggle against it is so hard, but because it can be so lonely. And I think you know how this plays out. The secret temptation you've got that you refuse to confess becomes the secret sin you start to entertain, which eventually becomes the bondage that is derailing you and finally becomes the identity that you claim for yourself, all because you never felt you could bring it out into the light. Now, maybe one of the good things about all of this cultural pressure for ministries like mine and, and Restory and others to shut down is that it puts the onus where it belongs, in the local church where the healing really needs to be done. But for that reason, of course, there has got to be a willingness to go with prohibition with partnering. Prohibition with partnering says to the individual basically what was said to me after my repentance when I joined the church, the men gathered around me and in essence reassured me that although they could not relate to my particular struggle, they absolutely could relate to struggle. And drawing on their own experience with sanctification, they were able to welcome me into their ranks and say, you are a fellow sinner saved by grace. Let's all by the grace of God wrestle and continue to run the race and stay the course to become the men of God we are meant to be. Now, they weren't brilliant. My honest opinion is they probably couldn't spell the word homosexuality. I doubt that they knew much about the thing, but who cares? They knew how to be disciplers. This is where I believe we need prohibitions with partnering. Now, that is, I believe, a better way as opposed to the harsher way. But in response to the harsher way, there is now a grave danger, and I think grave danger is a fair way to describe it, of the church going what I would call the nicer way, which is not to say there's anything wrong with nice, is there? I think of all people, Christians should be the most respectful, affectionate, kind, accessible, polite, nice. I like nice. Um, I'd just as soon get along than not. And with all due modesty, I'm the best cuddler I know. I mean, I'm a great hugger, so nice is good with me. I like all that whipped cream that goes with just, I'm nice, you know. But when the desire to be nice is taking priority over the desire to speak truth and to give the full counsel of God, now we are no longer really nice anyway in the strictest sense. If you're on the Titanic and the thing is going down and you know where the lifeboats are, it is not nice to avoid telling people clearly, the only way you will live is if you go here. If you do not go here, you will die. Now that is upsetting. That is not a nice truth. But for heaven's sake, there could be nothing kind or loving but giving anybody information uh, uh, apart from the fact that this is the way you're going to live, there is a right way. And by the way, I think this is where we, the church, are challenging one of the great errors of the time. This is an error of contempt for absolutes that are binary and true. In fact, non-binary is currently one of the biggest put-downs you can hear from people. And yet, in the book of Genesis, the first thing we see is a bunch of binaries. In the beginning, God created heaven, earth, land, sea, animal, human, male, female. God forbid we apologize for binaries that are God-ordained. So the nicer way, I believe, has been a reaction to old approaches evidenced in three errors that I believe are current 
and that pose a danger to the church. Revision, reduction, and re-identification. Let's talk about each of these. Revision is just that, the revision of truth. The revision of truth happens when truth has become so inconvenient, so controversial, so messy, that we decide to avoid the inconvenience and the controversy and the messiness, we will revise truth to make it more palatable. Let's land on that for a minute. Isn't that how the whole tragedy of human sin began? Somebody listened when somebody else started revising truth. Eve listens to a creature who is saying, hmm, did God really say that? Either he doesn't really have your best interest at heart, or maybe you misunderstood, or maybe there's more to the picture than that. And that's a while. It was all downhill after that, wasn't it? Eve's deceived, Adam's in transgression, and boom, we have fallen nature. Revision. Revision of truth basically on this issue would say the Word of God does not prohibit homosexuality. We have misunderstood the Word of God. Let's thereby revise the Word of God because that will be more convenient. And in a way, I get it. I really do. When I love someone, and I think you could relate to this, you love deeply, and when you know someone you love is not walking in truth, well, you know, like John said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. Yeah, but, but the opposite of that is I have no greater fear than to hear my children are not walking in truth. And when they are, there's going to be pain. Someone I love is outside God's will. They're outside the truth. What do I do with that? Maybe I could kill the love. Then it won't hurt anymore. Or maybe I can change the truth and it won't hurt anymore. No wonder so many people are going for pro-gay theology. It revises the truth. And it assures people, don't worry about your loved one. Your loved one just came out. She was raised in church. He was raised in church. They seem to have rejected the truth. No, they haven't. The truth, well, what is the truth after all? It's a little more plastic than we've assumed it to be. And that can be very reassuring if you don't want to feel that your loved one is walking outside of the truth. As we speak, there are organizations at the risk of sounding paranoid organizations dedicated to infiltrating the Bible-believing church and to convincing the churches to revise their position on homosexuality, all based on a sense of what I would call false compassion. Whole denominations have split over this issue, and there are leaders who still identify as evangelical who are saying, I am now gay-affirming and I am Bible-believing. And that is leaving us really not just with a battle over sexual ethics, that's only symptomatic. This is, and let's not kid ourselves about it, this is a battle over biblical authority and the Lordship of Christ. This is the battle over what it means to be human as God has defined humanity. This is not a secondary issue. And there are secondary issues, I know that. Somebody's right about the rapture. It, I mean, it's something, it's mid or it's post or it's pre, it's you know, I know where I stand, I do. Um, but I can't imagine us breaking fellowship over that. I would call that a secondary doctrinal issue. But let's say it plainly. To commit sexual sin is to be guilty of immorality. To legitimize sexual sin is to be guilty of heresy. It is both a doctrinal issue and a moral issue, and that means, no, it ain't no secondary issue. Revision, then, is serious error to avoid. 
Then there is reduction. Reduction is just when we reduce the seriousness of this. I don't want to start talking out of school or getting into gossip. Let me just say publicly, I do remember in a public setting when a very well-known um, author who identifies as evangelical had come out as pro-gay, gay-affirming, and said, I now believe the Bible commends homosexuality. God is all for it. And that author had a podcast in which she hosted an extremely well-known evangelical Bible-believing author who holds the traditional view of homosexuality. He does hold the right positions on it, and yet in their interview, which I listened to a number of times, he said as an influential Christian leader, isn't it nice that despite our differences, we can put our differences aside because the main thing is we are all believers, we can all be in unity, and we don't need to let this divide us. And I thought, for heaven's sake, you have just messaged everybody who struggles with homosexuality that it ain't no big deal if they give in to it. If they utilize their body in a way God never intended, you have said that that is a secondary issue. You have reduced the seriousness of it. You have, in my opinion, walked right into the trap. And for that reason, I do believe that the New Testament, which specifically condemns sexual sin in virtually all of its books, also commends a recognition of sins that we cannot agree to disagree over. We cannot be in communion together if we are basically rewriting the Bible to accommodate sin, nor can we regard it as a secondary issue, which leads to a third point, re-identification. Revision is, let's rewrite the truth. Reduction is, well, let's not rewrite the truth, but let's reduce the importance of the truth. Re-identification is, let's identify with what is wrong without doing what is wrong. Now, let me explain that. There is a movement we are faced with now in the church called basically the gay Christian movement. It's not a movement that necessarily legitimizes homosexuality, but it legitimizes a homosexual identity. And through it, people are encouraged if they happen to feel same-sex attractions and they are Christian, they are encouraged to say, I am a gay Christian. As a gay Christian, I am gay. I don't give in to homosexual temptation, but that is still who I am, which makes me within the church a sexual minority. And if I marry, it will be a mixed orientation marriage because I'm gay and she is straight. And so it imposes a labeling we cannot find in scripture by which people identify themselves primarily by a sinful sexual tendency. Now, in response, on a personal note, let me say this. When I repented of homosexuality, the Spirit of God made something very clear to me, a twofold point. One, you are never to lie about what you experience. If you have homosexual temptations, don't pretend you don't. Be honest. But you are never again ever to refer to yourself as a gay man. Never. You are a new creature in me. As a new creature in me, you may continue to have temptations, be honest about those temptations, but you are never to identify yourself by those because in doing so, you are imposing on yourself a name and a title and a concept that is not befitting a daughter or a son of God. What God has renamed, he has declared. And what God has declared, we don't get to reduce. So when God says to Baron Abram, you shall be Abraham the stud, 
Or when God says to heal catching Jacob, you shall be Israel governed by God. Or when God says to unstable Peter, you are going to be the rock. That which is created and that which has been declared over what has been created has no right to be revised or reduced or re-identified. No. We identify ourselves as sinners saved by grace. We do not identify ourselves by any particular sin. And for all of those reasons, I will not accept the label of a dead man. I am told in Colossians that my old nature is dead in Christ. I have been made alive in him. I will choose that life because, and this is important, when we call people to repent of any life-dominating sin, yeah, we're calling them out of Egypt, and that is good and that is right, but for heaven's sake, let's not leave them here in the wilderness where they are still identifying with their bondage. We call them into something more, into a promised land. So we are never called to say, I am limited in my identification by whatever sinful tendencies I feel. I admit I have them, but by the grace of God, I no longer have to yield to them. This is who I am now. I declare something new, as we must. And that leads to what I would call a better way. A better way. A better way is the way that I am confident, <laughs> having known your pastor and, and having been here, I know this is the way you are taking, the way many churches are taking. It is the way I believe we call all churches to take. And that is response according to need. Response according to need takes its cue from the Gospels, from the life of Christ when he responded to each individual uniquely according to individual need. Now, what do people need if they have not been born again? They need the Gospel. That's why the Great Commission we have is twofold. Preach the Gospel, make disciples. And just a side note, there was never meant to be a division between the two, was there? I mean, for heaven's sake, I am meant to be born again there is never meant to be a distinction between a believer and a disciple. Having been born again, it is expected that I will continue to know the Lord and to follow the Lord. And so it is with the Great Commission. First, we call people to life. Our call to the lesbians and the gays and the transgenders and the bisexuals and the questioning, our call to them is not go straight. Our call to them is live. We want you to be born again. Our call to them is, come unto him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Why? Because when Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, he knows, yeah, the, the lady's in sexual sin, but that's only symptomatic of her brokenness. Now, he didn't condone the sin. He didn't minimize the sin. He said, yeah, I get it. When she said, well, I'm kind of between husbands now, and he said, yeah, I, I know your record, but let's talk about the real issue. I want you to drink from water that is going to leave you so you never thirst again. I'm the Messiah. Know me. I want you to live. That's our message to them is we want you to live. So what do we preach to them? Sexual ethics? No, primarily we preach, hey, the claims of Jesus Christ, who he is, the promises of Jesus Christ, what he offers, the requirements of Jesus Christ, what he will call you to. That we preach plainly, knowing some will receive and some will not. We get that too. But that is the first part of a better way, response according to need by preaching the gospel. And then to those within the church, and on this, let's be absolute bulldogs in our stubbornness. We will give the full counsel of God. Now, the full counsel of God, that's what Paul told the Ephesian elders, I did not shun from giving you. When you needed reassurance, I gave you reassurance. When you needed doctrinal truth, I gave you doctrinal truth. When you needed exhortation, I gave you exhortation. I didn't spare in my conviction or my compassion when I was dealing with you. 
I say all of that because we must remember there are people being called to repent, even today. In fact, let me say this plainly. We talked about the conference we did here yesterday. We talked about the ministry of Restory and the individuals involved in Restory, Dr. Seiler, myself, so many others. Seriously, in the natural, none of what we do makes a bit of sense. It makes no sense at all. Because this is 2022. If people feel attracted to the same sex, they are bombarded with the invitation to embrace those attractions. They are bombarded with the message that the only option they have is to come out of the closet and declare themselves lesbian, gay, or trans. And yet against all logic, at least in the natural, you know what is happening? They're like a bunch of salmon swimming upstream. They're doing what we did against all logic. Why? Well, because I remember, at least myself, I thought I was on a pleasure cruise and I found out in 1984, no, it's the Titanic and I'm going down. And there is a window of opportunity in which I am being given space to repent. And so having been interrupted by God, I will say yes to that space for repentance. That's what they're doing today. Because they are basically saying by the grace of God, and this speaks to God's sovereignty, even in the darkest of times, they are saying, God has made it clear to me this is not what I am created to be. I don't care what the psychiatric association or the media or the news industry or the, or, or the education industry are telling me. I have a thousand voices telling me to say yes, but one primary voice telling me to say no. I therefore choose no, and they are swimming upstream. It's an unbelievable joy to be with them, but you know what's happening? They're called to repentance. Well, when God calls a man to repent, he calls the church to receive. And there we are, with this amazing opportunity to give the full counsel of God to people who come into the church, just as I did, saying, I have a problem, so what do I do now? And we speak to them about what we offer and about the outcome, offers and outcomes. What do we offer? We'll give you the word. We will give you community. By the way, as you know, nobody was meant to ever choose between community and truth. We need both. We will give you ourselves. We will relate to you. We will give you our time. We will give you our concern. And in the process of doing that, because God has ordained this, which by the way is another mind blower to me, I guess completely off topic, but I am more amazed than ever that God condescends to allow you and I to be a part of what he wants to do when he could do it himself so much better. I think I get a little bit of that now as a father, as a father of grown sons. When they were little guys, I'm mowing the lawn, you turn on the machine, you know how that plays out, budding testosterone, noisy machine, ooh, can I join you? which they did. Now, when they were teenagers, they weren't crazy about it, but as little boys, <laughs> I'm mowing the lawn, they want to join me, so I take the wide grip and they're pushing it around and, and it takes me about five times longer than it would have otherwise. And the yard winds up looking like a Picasso by the time we're done with it, but you know what? I didn't give a rip. My boys were joining me in my work. And I think that speaks to the Father heart of God saying, I love you, you're members of my body, you are my people, share my heart, share my vision for what I want to do, let me use you to accomplish my purposes, imperfect though you may be, I would rather we do it than I do it. And thereby the body of Christ is established, well, for so many reasons, but one of them being we are the vehicles through which the gospel is preached and the full counsel of God is given. So we say to people, we're here, we're here. 
And in doing so, I think we do something elegant and magnificent. We challenge lies. The great healing in my own life, and I think many others who've dealt with this sin would say the same, the great healing in my life came through healthy relationships within the body of Christ. And in those healthy relationships, lies get challenged because we come into church, many of us, carrying the lies of a wounded soul. I'm stupid, I'm worthless, I'm in the way, I'm ugly, I'm not of any value. And through our love and our interaction and our exhortation, we build people up, we challenge those lies. And other people in the church come in saying, here I am, you lucky body of Christ, the great guy, you know, and we poke some holes into that lie too. And we teach humility and we teach a proper perspective. If we're doing our job with each other, we are having impact on each other. Not because we become PhDs in the human experience, but because we have experience that we use for our own expertise and for the benefit of others. So we offer to people our love, our engagement, our fellowship, our time, our energies, and the gifts God has given us. And the outcome, what can they expect? Because people will always say, what are you going to offer me if I come into the body of Christ, and what can I expect? Am I going to change? Yes, absolutely. Will I completely change in every way? Not in this life. But you can expect ongoing change and transformation in every part of your life, sexuality included. When I repented, I noticed that the longer I abstained from that sin, the less frequently the desire for that sin came up. And when it came up, the less intensely it came up until I reached a point where I had met a lovely young woman who I found I genuinely wanted, did not just admire, but wanted. And I found that after 35 years of marriage with her, those desires are so at bay, I cannot say that they have any impact on me, which cracks me up when I hear all these modern charges against anybody who claims to have changed from gay to straight, because I think, well, now what the heck are we supposed to do? Apologize for what happened to us? No. We can't help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Now, does everybody get the same outcome? No, we clarify this to everyone, no matter what they're dealing with. No, we can't promise you that you will never be tempted again. We can't promise you to what extent you lose these temptations instead of these temptations, because we are all works in progress in which many sins are being dealt with. But we do know that while the outcome may be unique, the call is the same. Follow me. Where's that going to take you, and what are you going to experience? I really don't know. Now, think about that conversation the Lord had with Peter after the resurrection. They're sitting around, they're dining, and Jesus summons Peter over and says, let's get back to that topic we talked about before I was arrested. You said you loved me, and you would never forsake me, that you would never be one who would deny me. Um, what do you have to say now? Do you love me? And it was actually a redemptive dialogue in which Jesus sort of underscored the fact that you have imperfect love. You tell me you phileo me, I ask you if you agape me with divine love. You say you have human love to offer, and I finally say, I accept that, I understand. And then Jesus said something important. You have been accustomed to going your own way. You have been accustomed to doing what you want to do. Henceforward, you will be led. And then Peter looks over at John and says, well, what about him? What's his outcome going to be? And Jesus rather gently says, it's none of your business. If it's my desire for him to live until I come again, what's it to you? And in fact, as we know it played out, Peter died a martyr's death. John evidently died a natural death. The call was the same, follow me. 
the outcome was unique. Follow me. Are you going to get married or are you going to be single? Are you going to have this temptation or are you going to have that temptation? Are you going to have this calling or that calling? Oh, who on earth knows? You follow him. And as you follow him, and this we can say with integrity, it's no cop-out, it's solid truth. We can, with the integrity and the authority of the Word of God, promise that anyone who follows him sincerely will be given all they need to live the righteous life and to run the race. And in running the race, we basically are all saying the same thing, aren't we? And it's certainly what we're saying to the person in our midst who struggles with anything. By the grace of God, may you and I shed whatever is interfering with our ability to successfully run this race. And as we see the culture in many ways becoming more hostile to the Christian positions on these primary issues, we remember the closer you get to the end of the race, the less you are looking at the spectators and the more you are looking at the end goal and the prize. And you realize that if they're cheering, great. If they're jeering, too bad. I keep running. Why? Because the goal never was to be popular as much as it is to be faithful. For that we will be judged when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But it's not all bleak. There will always be those who, by the grace of God, respond to the word of God that we give faithfully. Always. Nothing will change that. I don't care what laws get passed or who's in the White House or where the culture goes with this. The Word of God isn't going anywhere. And it will still do everything it itself says it will do. It is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. They will respond. So that's so Paul said to Timothy, here's your job description. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all, apt to teach, looking for the opportunity like, Lord, give me that opportunity to speak truth. Patient, well, you better be or you'll lose your mind. In meekness, no better than anybody else, instructing those who, aha, oppose themselves. It's not in their best interest, they just don't know it. If peradventure, what? God will grant them repentance according to the acknowledging of truth. Why? That's exactly what's happening. Against all odds, people are being granted repentance according to the acknowledgement of the truth. Where is the truth coming from? Primarily from the members of the body of Christ who are willing to take up the challenge to faithfully preach the word of God and let the spirit of God confirm the word of God because no matter what happens, as long as the people of God will preach the word of God, the spirit of God will confirm the word of God and the fruit will come. The people of God, maybe some of us will be silenced. The word of God never will. And there is great peace and there is great promise in that. Let's pray.